some of our system may be short-wired right now or messed up because we're going to talk about the Easter story in June. It's okay to do that, okay? And so if that kind of messes you up a little bit this morning, don't let that uh, be the case. So we're going to look at this. I, I, I pray this morning with some fresh eyes. Um, as we come to these texts that we're very familiar with, um, it's important for us to always ask God to help us to see fresh things or the things that have always meant much to us about, though, about some of these familiar passages, that we would be greatly encouraged by them um, once again. So as we come to this text, I want to remind everybody what we see in really all four Gospels concerning the resurrection of Jesus. With the life of Jesus, they struggled, the twelve did, all the way along because they, they had an idea that was a false idea that the Messiah was going to come and He was going to restore Israel. He was going to reign. He was going to overthrow Rome. And so they have this idea that Jesus has come to reign. And now He's dead. And now He's in a tomb. And over the weekend, they're wondering, what does this mean for us. Now, while Jesus had been speaking of his rising again, we will see that none of them really fully believed initially in the moment what Jesus meant by this. As a matter of fact, it has happened. They're going to find the tomb empty. And we read in verse 9 there that they did not yet fully understand um, that he must rise again according to the scripture. And so they're still at this place of not really understanding what Jesus has been saying to them. By way of introduction, just a few things this morning and then we'll get into the text. One of the interesting things about all four of the resurrection accounts is that none of them give any detail at all of how it happened and and, and when exactly it happened. It's happened sometime in the early morning hours. There's no other thing that's there. The important thing is, is it discusses and details for us that he did rise again from the dead. The reality of the moment is he started breathing again and he came up out of his grave clothes and he walked out of the tomb. They give all of their attention to the aftermath of him coming and rising from the grave and how people begin to process this. And now here we are in 2022 talking about the greatest thing that's happened in the world's history. Death has no claim. It doesn't have the sting that it had. It's not doesn't have this power over people who are believers because of what Christ has done for us. All those centuries before, in a garden, so much was lost. And now in a garden, Jesus rises from the dead and so much hope is brought back into this. And so we will encounter three people today in the text as we looked at the first part of the resurrection account this morning. With each of them, as they come to the tomb, they will still have some questions wandering around in their mind as to what will happen and take place. And they will come in the days ahead to find the answers um, to the great questions, they, questions that they have about his death, about his resurrection. They will come as he teaches them and pours his life into them over the next 40 days. And so as they come to the tomb on this morning, they are forced to look inside their hearts, forced to look inside what he had taught them, how he had modeled God to them, how he had lived, how he had died, and now he's not present. And they would come to see that the empty tomb meant the incredible reality that our hearts now could be filled. Our hearts before were empty. But now that the tomb is empty and he has risen from the dead, we have the great hope now 
that our hearts and our lives can be filled with the presence of God because Christ has died and Christ has risen. Our faith, the Christian faith, rests on this verifiable truth. Jesus rose from the dead. If this did not happen, then you and I are wasting our time this morning. Now, we could have some community to spend time together, but if He did not rise from the dead, then there is no hope today. This is what Paul said, and he he wanted to make sure that Christians understood the reality and the significance of the resurrection. So Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. So everything in regard to our faith, the Christian faith, rests on the historical and verifiable truth that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. For the apostles, it became became the anthem of what they began to declare. They understood the reality of Jesus' death, and now in the resurrection, as they put both of those things together, they began to proclaim the reality of what happened because Christ was risen. So in the early days of the church, Peter said this, Acts 2.31, He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that He was not abandoned to Hades, nor did His flesh see corruption. This Jesus, Peter says, God raised up, and of that, he says, we are all witnesses. A little bit later in Acts chapter 3, verse 14, after the healing of the lame man that's there outside of the temple, Peter says these words in Acts three fourteen: But you deny the holy and righteous one, and you ask for a murderer to be granted to you, and you kill the author of life, whom God raised from the dead, and to this we are witnesses. And so sometime, a couple of thousand years ago now, in the early morning hours, just before the sun was up or it was dawning, Jesus rose from the dead. It's interesting that Jerusalem lay asleep and the light of the world was awakened and came to life again in the dark night and nobody knew about it. But they began to know and they began to tell and they began to be transformed by the reality of the risen Christ. So I want to share this morning just some significant, I believe, perspectives about this event that are important for us to be reminded of or to see freshly this morning. So look at me in verse 1 again and let's read that. Now on the first day of the week, this is Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. We know from the other gospel accounts, um, some other women, if you remember, came with them as well. From Basically, from what we can understand from John's writing here is that Mary Magdalene probably was the first one to arrive. So she's likely the first one that kind of arrives. They're all kind of meeting there. They've got a plan. They're going to come together. They do see um, one another, but likely she's the first one um, who is there. And then she runs to tell Peter and John, and we'll talk about that here in just a moment. So as Mary gets to the tomb, for her, the moment is going to continue to be what she has experienced all weekend, sadness. This is Mary Magdalene to remind everybody about this. She has no idea on this morning what has happened as she has slept, as they talked the night before about going to the, to the tomb. 
um, to get the stone rolled away and to anoint uh, Jesus' body with spices that they are bringing with them again. She has no expectation that the tomb is going to be opened and Christ is going to be gone. The events of the morning so far, they are not known by her. So the heaviness of her heart, we would know that it remains. And she's sad. She, she, in her mind, Jesus is dead. He's still in the tomb. All of her hopes, all of her dreams, her good thoughts about the future, they are gone now as everything about her life she had placed in trusting in Jesus. If you'll remember, at one point in time, Mary Magdalene had seven demons living inside of her. She was tormented by them. She meets Jesus one day. He casts seven demons out of her life. Her life is transformed. She begins to follow him and the 12 apostles around Israel. Um, It tells us that they used to gather out of their means to help take care of Jesus and the 12. And so she's a part of this group. And so on this morning, as she comes, she's thinking, gosh, what a transformation that has happened in my life. And now he's gone. He's not around anymore. The joy and the hope that once marked her life by walking with Christ is gone. And it probably causes her to walk slowly to the tomb. She's still trying to process what happened on Friday and through the weekend. But on Friday, we know this about her. Where was she on Friday afternoon? She was at the cross. She was there with Jesus' mother, watching Jesus hang on the cross. And so on Friday, her love for Jesus brought her to stand at the cross and to behold Him and to look at Him. And on this Sunday morning, her love for Him brings her to wake up early morning and to come to the tomb where His body lay. I remind us of this. This is what love does. When you love God and you love Christ and you are in love with who He is, you are moved to action. You are moved to pursue. You are moved to go. And so in this morning, Mary, loving Jesus, though in her mind He's gone, is moved to come to the garden tomb. And as she gets there, shock of all shocks, if it couldn't, the weekend could not get any worse, as she walks up and she knows where the tomb is, um, she followed Joseph and Nicodemus as they buried the body. Um, Luke tells us that in, in Luke 23 that there were some women that were there as, as Jesus' body is being put into the tomb. So they know where it is. And so she shows up and from a distance she begins to see that there is a dark shadow against the stone of this cave and the stone is gone. And she begins to conclude some things. This is a picture of what things looked like in the day. Big, huge, round stone. It would cover an opening and it would be rolled down where it would fall into a fitted place. And so very difficult to move that. You would need a number of different people to be able to move that. And so as she comes, she sees that the stone has been rolled back and the tomb is empty. So she comes and she sees a tomb, not as what she thought it was going to be, but she sees a tomb that has been robbed. Little does she know who has robbed the tomb. God has. God has come and He has robbed the tomb. By the way, let me just state this in the beginning and I'll repeat it again a couple more times this morning. The stone was not rolled away so that Jesus could get out. Later that night, He will just appear in the room. The stone was rolled back so that what? We could look inside and see. He's not there. 
he has risen from the grave. And so from a distance, she sees this and concludes in her mind that something has happened. There's been a robbery. If she could have comprehended the significance of the moment, what all of God's glory and worship that she could have had here. We know this, that the angel, um, Mary's going to run in a minute. She's going to go back and tell Peter and John. She's going to come back to the tomb. There's going to be angels that are going to be there, and the angels are going to tell her, hey, remember what he's been telling y'all? That he would rise from the dead? So listen to this. So not only did the twelve know that Jesus, Jesus had been telling them, I'm going to rise from the dead, but the women knew about this as well. They were in and around this teaching from Jesus. And so they've been taught this. They've been told by Jesus that he's going to rise again, and yet it's not stuck in their minds. Is that not like us sometimes? How many times do we have to be told things? over and over and over again, and it does, it's not there. And so Jesus has been telling them for a while now, this is exactly what's going to take place, but it's not stuck in their minds. And so there she is. And she represents what I believe we ought to call this morning deep, deep commitment. She is a disciple of deep commitment and love for the Lord. It is early, it is dark, the city is still asleep. It has been a heart-wrenching emotional, weakened, but her heart is still captivated by Christ. After all, he did a huge work in her life to transform her. Seven demons gone from her life, a relationship with Jesus, friendship with Jesus. Listen, she never got over the transformation that had come to her life. She represents for us what you and I ought to be. How how have you come into this room this morning? Have you been in the faith for years, decades? And it's just kind of blah. Well, she couldn't get over it. That her life had been transformed by Him. We We ought to be the same way. We shouldn't be the kind of people that can't get over the reality that who we used to be has been transformed by Christ. And that we have been changed by His great power. And that His presence, His abiding presence of the Spirit lives inside of us because of this reality. And so here's Mary at the tomb. She can't get over this. And I believe the church needs more people like Mary Magdalene who cannot ever get over and cannot ever forget what Christ has done for them. Now she doesn't understand everything from the weekend. But do you see her love for Jesus? gets her up in her sadness in the early morning hours to come to a tomb. Let's look at verse 2. And I want to talk about a jump to a conclusion. This is the one thing that none of us ever, ever do. You probably won't learn anything under this point, but maybe you can learn something to share with a friend, okay? So she ran and went to Simon Peter, the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, who we believe is the Apostle John, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid Him. So let's talk about a jump to conclusion for just a moment. So she came to the garden tomb on this morning, not expecting a resurrection, not expecting an open tomb, expecting a dead body, that Jesus' body would still be in the grave. What she finds is a stone rolled away. The body came, was gone. 
And so she begins to do something. As she sees this before, what does she do? She tries to fill in the blanks. She's got a bunch of blanks in front of her. Okay, what do I conclude about this? And so she begins to fill in the blanks, come up with her own narrative of what must be the answer to what I am seeing directly in front of me. And so she assumes somebody has come to steal the body. She doesn't make the connection that what she is seeing is in line with what Jesus has been telling them for months now. She makes the mistake here that you and I can make easily as well. She looks at the tomb with the, eye, with the eyes in her head, not with spiritual eyes and not with faith. Not trusting in and remembering what Jesus had been pouring into them from his mouth. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be delivered over to the religious leaders. But I will rise again. She looks at the tomb with the eyes in her head, not the eyes of her heart. And she comes up with a man-centered conclusion as to what she sees before her, not a scripture-centered conclusion. Again, Jesus had been telling them about this. So she jumps to a conclusion about everything in front of her. She fills in the story that is not true. It's a bit dangerous when you and I in relationships, you ever do this in relationships? Sometimes maybe we, we sense from somebody they've looked at us weird or whatever and we, we begin to conclude, oh, they must be upset about something and the reality is, is they're not anything. They're not even thinking about us whatsoever. They've got something out there or they've got indigestion. I don't know what the issue is. But we begin to fill in things to think this is what's happened. This is what Mary does. So instead of trusting in what Jesus has been saying... She right there decides, okay, this, is, this has been a robbery. Somebody's come during the night, they've rolled the stone away, and they've taken the body of Jesus. None of this is true. And yet in the moment, what did she believe it to be? She believes it to be true. So on this morning, all of these words are at, none, none, of, the word, none of the words that Jesus has been telling them are at the forefront of her mind she begins to make up a story. And again, she is filling in, filling in things from her own conclusions based on what she sees and concludes what has happened. We must avoid this in our lives. Spiritually, we must avoid this as we look at the Scripture. And we also must avoid this in our relationships that we're not filling in the blanks about what God thinks about certain things when He has told us what He thinks about things. And so again, she had an opportunity that morning to trust what Jesus had been saying to them, but she gets to the place where she concludes her own picture. All of this brings us to be reminded that we must walk by faith and not by sight. And though the words have not been written yet, Mary Magdalene could have used them on this morning. Listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5 and 6 and following So we are always of good courage, for we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. And yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. We please Him by walking by faith, not by sight. And so she's, again filled in the blanks of what she thinks the story of Jesus is right now. 
And it's not the case at all. False narratives never help us at all in our relationships, and they do not help us spiritually. So Mary has made up a false narrative that is not true. Nobody came and stole the body. Jesus walked out. Now let me just deal with something before we move on to point three. Many skeptics of Christianity have used John's narrative in chapter 20 to say, look at Matthew's narrative, look at Mark's and Luke's. John's is different, so therefore you cannot conclude that they're all telling the truth about this aspect of things. And they've used this to say this, that John writes here that Mary Magdalene comes by herself. But did you notice the language she used a while ago? We, we, she says, we don't know where they have taken the body. When she uses we, what is she indicating? That there are others with her that have come with her to the tomb. And so for me, it's, a, it's an easy reconciliation of what skeptics have tried to say about this. John is just writing, again, about 60 years after the event, and he's indicating that Mary showed up, and this is what happened with Mary Magdalene. She speaks, and he writes there that it's clear she was with other who had come to the tomb as well, and they met there. And so she says that we do not know where they have led him, laid him. By the way, let me just talk about that pronoun. So there's a pronoun we, indicating she was not by herself, that others were with her. And then to indicate that she has made up this story, somebody has come, a group of people have come, and they have laid him somewhere. Is any of that true? Has anybody laid Jesus anywhere? No. This is what she believes in the moment. And again, none of it's true. This is why in our lives, particularly in regard to doctrine and theology and teaching of Scripture, we must live guided by what the texts say. Not what we, want, what we want to read into them, but what do they say? And so here's someone who loved Jesus, had been taught Jesus' words. She had been discipled, either at times directly, indirectly, by being around Jesus. He has said over and over, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again. And now before the evidence before her, this Christ lover, and I know that she loves Jesus has concluded what she thinks is the truth. And it's not the truth. And so for you and I, we've got to be really, really careful that we don't come to man-centered conclusions about God, about the Scripture. We come to biblical, Christ-centered, strong doctrinal conclusions that are based on what the text says. So we've got a raided tomb that's thought. We've got someone who's jumped to a conclusion. And now we've got two men on a race. So let's look at them. Look with me in verse 3. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb, both of them running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw, I want you to note the word saw, we're going to see it three times here. He saw the linen cloths lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. 
So here's Mary's response. She wakes up that morning. She's deeply committed to Jesus. She wants to go to Jesus um, to anoint his body. She's going to meet some other women there. They're going to do this. She gets there. The stone's rolled away. The tomb is empty. She reaches her own conclusion. Somebody's come and they've, they've stolen Jesus' body. And so she hurries back to find Peter and John. I find it interesting for me just to state this morning that they all knew where each other were during that weekend. Though it had been a traumatic weekend to them, she knew exactly where Peter and John were. She goes to where they were and she runs and she tells them, somebody has come and stolen the body during the night. Peter and John, I, I don't know what the moment must have been like if I tried to think about it. Did they, you ever been with somebody and kind of get excited in the moment or and did they look at each other and it's like okay okay we got we got to go we got to go ourselves and so they leave wherever it is that they're in hiding and they begin to run and I want you to see two grown men who have lived in fear over the weekend sprinting through the streets of Jerusalem trying to get to a city gate to go outside of the city and to go to the place where they know Jesus has been buried and I wondered about Peter was Peter feeling conviction over the weekend? What had Peter done the night before? He had boldly said, I will never deny you. And what, he, what had he done? He had boldly denied. And over the weekend, can you imagine the weight that must have felt on Peter? Wow. My mouth gets me in trouble all the time. Bold declarations and then bold denials by me. And I wonder if Peter represents for us the convicted disciple. I wonder if he's running because he wants to look Jesus in the eye and to confess his denials to Christ. Does he, does he want to say something? Is he, has he been thinking about it? Boy, if I, could just, if I could just see him one more time, this is what I would say to him. And as he runs through the streets, is, is this in his mind? Is this going through his mind? He, just, he wants to say to Jesus, if he could just talk with him again, I'm sorry about that. Do you remember Luke records for us that, that Peter's boldly denying that he doesn't know Jesus and Jesus walks by from the trial and they look at each other. And the, the, the moment of conviction, that must have been for Peter, as Jesus is watching and listening to Peter deny him. And so here's Peter running. He may be like some of us in the room today where we have some things in our past. And please hear this this morning. Some of us have some things in our past. Some of us have things that maybe are consistently in our present, that they've been a part of our life, and we really, really wrestle with those things. I want to remind you that you can overcome those things by God's power and God's forgiveness and God's mercy and God's grace and God's great kindness to bring restoration to our lives. And Peter may be thinking, can I ever overcome this? I was the leader of everyone and look what I said, look what I did, look how I responded in my pressure moment. And so maybe he wants to get there and just pour his heart out. If this is the case, we want to affirm Peter's desire to get things right with Christ. Let me also just say this. According to verse 4, it says there, both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. If they had stolen the body, would they be sprinting through the streets? It doesn't make any sense. 
No, they would be continuing to try to figure out how to hide the body, not going back to where they had committed the crime. That's one of the big things the skeptics have done. The disciples came. As a matter of fact, toward the end of the first uh, century, this was the story that they were continuing to tell. That the, and it was a made-up story that the religious leaders were a part of. Then tell everybody that the disciples came during the night and they stole the body. So it doesn't make any sense that they're running back to where they've committed a crime. Peter and John, as the leaders in the group, would have been in on that the body was stolen. Um, Mary probably would have heard about that as well. I, mean, I guess they could have kept that a secret. All of this just doesn't make logical sense. They are running to the garden tomb. Why? Because his body was in there, and now their friend Mary Magdalene, who was, who was someone they trusted, who had an impact in their life, has come back with a truthful statement, the body is not there anymore. And so you've got two men who walked with Jesus for over three years, running back to see it for themselves. John is often seen in the Gospels as having close proximity with Jesus. He's leaning on Jesus' chest in the upper room. He's standing at the cross, beholding Jesus as he's dying. And so it is likely John's great love for Jesus that's causing him to sprint through the city and to run to the tomb so fast on this Sunday morning. And do we not all need a love like that for Jesus? A love that causes us to run after him, to want to go see to want to investigate, to want to see the glory of what has happened. And so John has run to, and drawn to the empty tomb as his heart has been overwhelmed during the weekend as he can't handle the thought of not ever being able to see Jesus again. Again, I just want to remind us, they hadn't really believed it yet, that this was going to come true. And I admire that they both went to see for themselves. For at this point, no one had seen the risen Lord And so you and I ought to be just like them, diligent in seeking the truth about Christ and to know the fullness of that, even in the moments where we don't understand what is happening around us. Be pursuers of Jesus, seek Jesus, and pursue Him. I also want to stress that as we see them run, they are not wasting time and energy running to the tomb just because they hear that a body has been stolen. They've been also taught the same thing that he was going to go to Jerusalem. He would be put to death, and he would rise again. I think they're also running because they're hungry for the truth. They want to know what has happened. And again, in a day and time where people in our culture are running from the truth, there's one group of people that run to the truth, and that's us, God's people, longing for what the truth says to us, about Christ. Now I want to talk about these words saw just for a moment and then we'll move on. So um, I've laughed about this. We've joked about it before, but I think it's important. Guys are always in competition with one another. And so here's John writing 60 years later, making sure that all of the church for the rest of history knows that he could run faster than Peter. And so he probably was younger. He gets to the tomb first and he kind of a little more reserved possibly, and he kind of stands outside and he just looks inside. But when Peter gets there, I picture him kind of hitting John, and he goes right inside the tomb to look and to behold what's there. And so when they're there, they look inside, and and the words there are interesting. 
So it says, it says there um, in verse 5, John saw, that's the first saw. There's three different Greek words for seeing here. So John gets there first, he looks inside, and the word that's, that John writes there is saw. And in the Greek it just means this, to look at something. Just as you're looking at me this morning and I'm looking out at you, it's just seeing something that's there. So John looks inside and he, he sees what's there. Verse 6 says that when Peter gets there, he saw inside the tomb, and it's a different Greek word. It's a Greek word that eventually becomes our English word, theater. You go to a play, you go to a musical, and there's people up there and they're performing and you're in the audience, and you're looking at everything that is happening and taking place on the stage. It's a, it's a look to, to be careful to see everything that, that is happening and taking place. And so, so this is there. So John gets there. He looks inside from, from outside. Peter barrels inside and he sees everything in there and he's taking it in like you would when you go to a movie or to a play. You're taking in everything and beholding everything that is before you. And as they look, here's what they immediately conclude. Everything inside the tomb was not chaos. Everything was in order. So they, 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 they look and the, the, the position of the cloths communicate to them, this has not been a robbery. What happens in a robbery, for the most part? Things are chaotic. People are pulling things away and tossing things. Keep in mind, when they buried Jesus, they laid his body out like this, and they would start down at the feet, and they would wrap the feet of Jesus, they would put some aloes and spices in. They would wrap up toward his knees, aloes and spices. And they would work their way up to his neck. We know that his head was covered in something different. So they have, they have anointed him with spices and these aloes. Nicodemus had 75 pounds worth of those, quite a bit that they have anointed as they've wrapped the body of Jesus. And as they look at what he had been wrapped in, they, could, they concluded immediately, this is not a robbery. Everything inside the tomb was in order. When it says here that when they saw the linen cloths lying there but did not go in, in verse 6, then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there. A literal translation of the cloths means this, still in their folds. What it ha- Over a couple of days now, you've got this lotion type liquid, spices. And what does that do to clothing over a period of time? What does it do? Hardens a little bit, right? It gets stiff. So when they look inside, they are seeing the linen cloths that had been wrapped from his feet all the way up to his neck and then what was above his head. They are still in their folds. Nobody had unwrapped him. Listen to this. Watch this. He had literally just come out of the grave clothes. He had come out of them. And as they looked inside, they could tell, okay, it looks like maybe a body could be in there, but it was also clear to them that a body's not in there. But it's clear to them something had happened. There was no cutting on the top. Nobody had cut from here down to his feet and opened it up to bring the body out. Why would you do that if you're a thief? You would just take everything, everything wrapped up. You would just take it and everything inside the tomb from the headdress that's there that he'd been wrapped in to what he had been wrapped in with his body, everything was in order. And we'll talk about the third 
thing that he sees here in just a moment. So again, I just want to remind us, the tomb was open not to let Jesus' body out because he had literally come up out of his grave clothes, but it was let the disciples in to see that Jesus had risen from the dead. So Peter looks at it. He's taking it all in. Jesus had left the tomb with everything in, or, in, everything in order. And I had a parent ask me, are you going to say that thing again that you say about his head thing? And I said, okay, I will. So this is for parents, students, and children in the room. Look up here. On the day of the resurrection, Jesus folded his clothes. So you fold your clothes at home, obey your parents, take care of things. But I want you to notice that. He comes up out of his grave clothes. He takes this. Again, on the most significant day in the history of the world, he takes what his head has been wrapped in, and he folds it neatly, and he sets it down. And it indicates that a God of order, a God of design has done this. This is not a robbery. They would have just ripped the thing off of his head and it had been laying around, but it was folded neatly. A robber would not fold something neatly. And so, so here's what happens next. And let's talk now about a heart that believes. Look at me in verse 8. So then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and here's the third saw. He saw and believed. So let's talk about what we've seen so far, and we'll talk about the third saw, and we'll finish up today. So the stone has been moved, according to verse 1. The stone that was in front of these tombs back then were a strong reminder of the finality of death. As Mary arrived that morning, what was supposed to be a strong statement was making another statement. The Lord was no longer there. It, again, it was not moved so that Jesus could get out, but so that we could get in and we could see that He's not in the tomb anymore. We learn from Mark's gospel that they're walking, the women are walking to the tomb, and they've not figured out who's going to help us roll the stone away because they know that they're not going to be strong enough to be able to do it. But again, their love has just brought them to the tomb again on this day, but the stone was already moved. The grave clothes had remained. He had come out of them. Thirdly, we'll talk more about this next week, is that angels are present. And they speak on this. And they tell them and remind them of the truth that Jesus had been saying this. And then Luke 24, Luke records this for us in Luke 24, 4. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. And then Luke records this from the angels. Remember how he told you? He's telling the women this. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of the sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. I want you to know that what do the angels do on this day? They point the women back to the words of Jesus. Back to the words of Jesus. Connecting the significance of those for their lives. So John, it says here, saw and believed. This Greek word means this, to get a mental picture of something and to see it with understanding. Now we know from the next verse in verse 9 
that they didn't really fully understand everything. But this third aspect, this third saw that John sees here, is he sees it with a bit more understanding. Peter is, John, John has seen everything, just a snapshot looking in, seeing the cloths that are there. Peter barrels in. He looks at it like you would at a, at a theater or a movie and just taking in every scene. He's looking at it and it's clear to Peter, it's clear to John, this has not been a robbery. And then John, note this, such an important principle for us in our lives. The longer John stays in the tomb, things begin to be clearer to him. He begins to see with clear understanding that this has not been a robbery. Now, we don't know exactly fully how far John's belief went, but John writes here that he saw and he believed. And so I remind us this morning that our faith, Christian faith, is grounded in the verifiable evidence that Jesus did rise from the dead. Now, I want to talk for a moment before we move to our last point about the difference between Lazarus and Jesus. When Jesus raised his friend Lazarus from the dead in Bethany, Lazarus' body still had his grave clothes on them. You remember that? And so Jesus said, help him get rid of his grave clothes. He needed help getting them off. With Jesus, he just came out of his grave clothes. Lazarus couldn't pass through his grave clothes. They still hung on him and he needed help. Jesus' resurrected body was unlike any He could walk through walls, doors, he could appear, he could disappear, he could simply go through grave clothes and a tomb. And inside the tomb, as the two men look, they see real evidence that Jesus had risen. And though they did not fully understand all of the implications about it, they were taking it in and it was having an impact upon their lives. Now later that night, it radically changes for them. Because what does Jesus do in a room? He just shows up. And he spends the rest of the night communicating to them from the Old Testament that all of this had to take place and it all had to be fulfilled. Lastly, this morning, I want to talk about the necessity to understand the Scriptures. So verse 9 and 10, For as yet they did not understand the Scripture, that he must rise from the dead... And then verse 10, and then the disciples went back to their homes. Let me just share a few things here, and then I want to give us some takeaways, some things that we need to think about for the rest of the week. Here's an interesting note on the eyewitnesses. No one that we read about in the four Gospels was expecting a resurrection on this Sunday morning. It's just pretty clear that they weren't, even though Jesus had been speaking of this. The first three who were there to see the empty tomb, Mary, Peter, and John, they were not expecting to see an empty tomb. They were initially confused by it. Mary makes up, Mary Magdalene makes up her own conclusion about it all, goes and tells some false information to Peter and John that somebody has stolen the body. They've come during the night and they have done this. And I believe that one of the most important things for us to that aids us in our understanding and our knowledge of who God is, is that we must be students of the Scripture. That what God says, we hold on to, we embrace, we put it into practice in our life, 
We know it to be gospel truth. We know it to be everything that we need for us in our lives. And so they behold what they see before them. And it begins to transform their lives. It is vital for us even on this day today that we behold the empty tomb and we contemplate the significant meaning, power it is for us in our lives. Likely when it says here that they didn't understand the scripture is a reference to Psalm 16.10 and Isaiah 53.10. Psalm 16.10 says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Psalm 53.10 speaks of um, hinting of resurrection here. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, and he shall see his offspring, it's not just going to remain dead, he will see his offspring, those that will come to believe, and he shall prolong his days. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So notice that it says, of them, of their understanding, for as yet. You ever been there? Where you didn't fully understand something in the moment, but through time, you continued to seek the Lord, you continued to behold the Lord, and in time, what happened? You began to understand, you began to see. So, in the moment, they didn't fully understand. They were growing into understanding. And what they were coming to see is that Jesus had risen from the dead. There is an absolute vital need in every one of our lives to read and know the Scripture. To read and know the Scripture. Then it says that Peter and John go home. That used to bother me. (laughs) What are you doing? And so I asked God, help help me to view this differently than what I've kind of placed on Peter and John because it kind of looks like, oh well, let's go home. And I don't think that's the case. What do you do on a morning like that when you show up and you know your friends have put him in the tomb? Many people know that he was there. They come to know that during the weekend, Roman soldiers are put at the tomb to guard it. A seal is put on the tomb saying, you remove this, you steal anything, you tamper with this. Death to you. And now, everything is all out in the open. And they go home because they're like, what do, not because they don't care, because they're like, okay, I don't know what to do, but I'm going to go back home and I'm going to wait for whatever it is is going to come next. So they're not apathetic. We've all been there. Have you had moments like that where you're like, well, I don't know what to do now. And so you go home and you wait. And you wait. And then somehow later, they get together on this night that we've just read about. And they're all in a room together except for Thomas. And Jesus shows up. And they behold the risen Lord. So let me give us some takeaways this morning that I think are important for us to apply um, grounded in what we've looked at today. And here's the first one. I love what I see from Mary Magdalene. Her life has been transformed by Christ. 
And on this morning, she just wants to go back to where he is. She's not a believer in the resurrection yet. But she wants to go and be as close to him as she can. Even if it's outside the tomb, somebody will show up and help him roll the stone away. She'll be able to go inside. She can minister to his dead body. And though she's wrong in what she concludes, and though she's wrong by thinking that there's still going to be a dead body when they should have known that Jesus always told the truth, things came true. There should have been an expectation, but there wasn't an expectation. But I love what we see, and it's this. Draw near to Jesus. Get to Jesus, even in your pain and even in our confusion. Get to Jesus. And that's what she does on this day. She wakes up comes to the tomb to be as near to Jesus as she can. Secondly, we must live by the revealed truth of Scripture and not assume things and fill in the blanks about things. You know how cults are started? They fill in the blanks with things. They add things. So that's why we don't do that. We we embrace the written text. So again, I go back to, I know I've said it multiple times this morning, but I think it's important to repeat it one more time. He has told them for a while now that all of this was going to take place. And as Mary sees it, that goes out the window, it's not stuck in her head, and she makes her own conclusions. So we must be the kind of people who live by the Revealed written truth of Scripture. Don't assume things and fill in the blanks. Thirdly, Peter and John get to the tomb. They look. They behold. They think about it. They take it all in. So they behold. They believe. And then they're bold. They will give their lives and their time and their energy to telling about the resurrected Jesus. So look, take careful notice this morning that Christ has risen from the grave. He has risen from the grave. Lastly, we must understand Scripture's revelation of truth. It's different from point two, where we live by it and we don't assume certain things. But we must really understand the written revelation of truth. Had the, had the resurrection been predicted even in the Old Testament? Yes. Remember Jonah? So there had been evidence and pictures along the way, not only of the cross of Christ, but the resurrection of Christ. And so for us, it's important that we understand Scripture's revelation of truth. So let me remind us of who testifies of the resurrection. And we're going to talk about more of these next week. But there's six of them initially here. The women speak of the empty tomb. They saw the tomb empty. They saw the tomb empty. The soldiers affirm that the tomb is empty. They've got to go back to the religious leaders and say an earthquake happened. We fell asleep and the stone was rolled back and the body was gone. The Roman soldiers affirm that the body was not in the tomb. Thirdly, 
Peter and John see the tomb empty. Fourthly, the orderly grave clothes testify that a robbery had not been taken place. Jesus literally came out of its clothes. They are still in their folds, a little bit stiff from the anointing that had happened to them. Fifthly, we'll talk about more about this next week, the Sanhedrin that had convicted Jesus to be crucified, they testify that the tomb is empty. So they make up a story to tell the soldiers. Here's the story. You tell people that during the night the disciples came and stole the body. So what are the religious leaders affirming? The body is gone. They can't prove that the tomb is not empty. They know that it's empty. And the sixth one is this. The angels testify that Jesus has risen. By the way, that means this. No one denies on the day of the resurrection that the tomb is not empty. Everybody affirms that the tomb is empty. Eyewitnesses. People there. Not people 2,000 years later deciding to be skeptics to try to tear this down. Those that were there. Six significant groups of people. And then Paul will later write to us that over 500 people saw Jesus at one time, not including the apostles seeing Jesus alive. So what's the conclusion? He's what? He's alive. He is alive. Let's pray.